Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, good friends. Hope you're already enjoying a great Thanksgiving week with your family and friends. And in that holiday spirit, I'm delighted to introduce you to Hollywood producer and Kennedy Center impresario, George Stevens Jr. George has had an incredible career. He started out working for his dad, the legendary director George Stevens, who won two Academy Awards for A Place in the Sun and Giant, and went on to direct such great films as The Diary of Anne Frank and The Greatest Story Ever Told. George Jr. became a leading Hollywood producer-director himself before coming to Washington as deputy director of the United States Information Agency and later founder of the Kennedy Center Honors, which he directed under six presidents, from Jimmy Carter to Barack Obama. Along the way, Stevens has worked with all the great stars of the golden age of Hollywood, from Rock Hudson to Audrey Hepburn, from Cary Grant to Elizabeth Taylor, and he tells his story in a wonderful, fun new book called My Place in the Sun. I love that book, and I know you'll enjoy my recent conversation about it with George Stevens Jr. at the Hill Center here in Washington, D.C. George Stevens, congratulations on the book and on a great career. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. I think I might quit while I'm ahead. That was a very... Uh... <laughs> so, George, you know, yeah. as they say, uh, the yeah. apple doesn't fall far, far from the tree. Boy, that right. is certainly true in your case, isn't it? Thinking about and reading about your grandmother, your grandfather, your father. I mean, you were born for this role. Truly, yes. <clears throat> and... You know, writing this book, you mentioned that you find it interesting. Um, I I realized after I'd finished it and read it that the kind of core of it is that I and my wife, Elizabeth, who had the company and friendship of some of the most fascinating people of the, certainly the last century and the first part of this. And it's those wonderful people. And and you mentioned for openers, uh, my family, my great-grandmother, Georgia Woodthorpe, was an actress in San Francisco <laughs> and quite prominent and successful. But she is uh, known for being the youngest Ophelia to the great Edwin Booth's Hamlet. Wow. There was a, a kind of stirring of quality. She started five generations of this of Stevens family in show business. My mother's mother, just to go to the other side of the family, was named Alice Howell. She went to Hollywood in 1913 and went to work for Max Sennett. And she starred in the first five films with Charlie Chaplin that he directed. Uh, in the first, she played Mrs. Payne, the, a dentist's wife, and Charlie Chaplin pulled down her bloomers. Uh, so, 
And then uh, my father's parents, Lander Stevens and Georgie Cooper, the daughter of Georgia Woodthorpe, they were actors in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he played over 500 roles on the stage. Um, she, many of those in his, as his leading lady. And then of course they gave birth to my father who uh, became a, one of the great movie directors. Yeah, one of the greatest uh, of all time. And your your father uh, with a giant, uh, a place in the sun, right? Um, the greatest story ever told. I mean, he he won what three, two Oscar, two Oscars, right? Two Oscars and the Irvin Thalberg Award. But kind of skipping around here, he went to war. He he'd made before the war. He made Alice Adams with Catherine Hepburn, Swing Time with Fred Astaire and Ginger said to be the crown of the Astaire Rogers musicals. Um, Gunga Dean with Cary Grant and Victor McLaughlin. Yeah. Um, and Penny Serenade with Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. Uh, the More the Merrier with Joel McRae and Jean Arthur. Woman of the Year, the first Tracy Hepburn picture. And then one night in a screening room in Columbia Pictures, the night he screened Lini Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, that amazing documentary she made showing the Hitler, mm-hmm. really the strength of the Hitler regime and with his speeches and marching troops and young zealots. And he decided that night he could not stay in Hollywood. He was well over draft age. And he asked for a commission and went to war for three years and Eisenhower put him in charge of filming the invasion of Europe, the D-Day invasion, all the way through the liberation of Paris to Dachau. And so, yes, he had quite a life. And when he came back from the war, he'd been away for three years and I'd been gone. Th- I, w- I was 11 when he left. And soon I was graduating from uh, Harvard School, a prep school in Los Angeles. And I had no summer job. And he said, well, maybe you can help me. Ah. And so he gave me two assignments. One was to break down Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. Ah. Whoa. Parts one and two and in, into two notebooks because he was about to start the screenplay of the movie that became A Place in the Sun hmm. based on Dreiser's American tragedy. The other job was to read all the stuff that came to him from Paramount, where his movie company was based. And there were an awful lot of treacly love stories that were hard going for a (laughs) 17-year-old in the California summer. But one day, a book arrived, a small book, and I picked it up, and I read it in the afternoon. And that evening, I went to see my father. He was in bed reading. And I, I said, Dad, this is really an interesting, a good book. I think you ought to read it. And he said, uh, why don't you tell me the story? Mm-hmm. So I found myself walking around his bed, doing my best <laughs> to tell the Jack Schaefer story that I read the afternoon called Shane. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. And the next summer, I was on location in Jackson Hole 
in a job called company clerk, which, which kept me very close to the camera. And I really had kind of a, the most remarkable three-month education of how a great movie is made and all the demands and all of that. My father and I just had a wonderful relationship. We loved one another. We liked working with one another. He was a great father. And and you work, as I said, with, with some of the greatest artists on the ever on the big screen, you know, Rock. Rock Hudson, James Dean, and Elizabeth Taylor. And Sidney Poitier, I separate the equal the miniseries about Brown versus I directed and wrote it with Sidney as its star and Burt Lancaster, which won the Emmy. And next year is the 70th anniversary, I believe, of Brown v. Board. And we're talking with the studio, and I think it's going to have a, a new release. During the time of Shane, uh, I, I went to the 1952 Oscars with my father and my grandmother, the actress, and my mother, who also was until I came along an actress. And I sat next to my father and Joseph L. Mankiewicz came on the stage. He had won the Oscar the year before for All About Eve. Mm -hmm. And he read the nominees, John Huston for The African Queen, William Wyler for Detective Story, Vincent Minnelli for An American in Paris, Elia Kazan for A Streetcar Named Desire. Wow. And George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. Wow. Had John Huston won, I would not be telling this story. <laughs> but, but my father received the Oscar, his first Oscar that night. And driving home, he was driving the car, and the Oscar was on the seat between us. And I don't know why or where it came from. And he turned to me and he said, you know, he said, we'll have a better idea what kind of a picture this is in about 25 years. Movies came and went. There were no cinematechs, uh, no DVDs, no streaming. But his experience in the theater with his parents, he had this idea about the test of time that was important for movies. And A Place in the Sun is now 70 years old and wow. is still considered one of the great movies. And I, and I look back on that, and he obviously did not know that the 17-year-old sitting next to him would one day be the founder of the American Film Institute or the Kennedy Center Honors, both of which had to do with the test of time and the idea that art that is worthy survives. Right. You know, just hearing the titles of those movies that were up for Best Picture of the Year in 1950, uh, that yeah. was that was really the golden age of Hollywood, George. How do you how do you compare that with what we see coming out of Hollywood today? Well, it amazes me, really. If you look at Turner Classic Movies, that so many of those films, those are five who are that I mentioned that are staples of, and, and as are the other pictures of John Huston, William Wyler, Vincent Minnelli, Elia Kazan, and George Stevens. It was, and, and there were other, Hitchcock and John Ford, and that there was just such a tribe of excellent aspirational filmmakers. And today there are fine movies being made. Christopher Nolan, certainly belongs in the company of those directors. 
and as do several others, Jane Campion. There's good work being done, but you wonder as you watch the Oscars, how many of those films will be watched in 70 years. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a critical time for the movie industry. Fortunately, this strike has been settled because we want the movies to survive. We want movie theaters to survive. How that's going to happen is still up for grabs. Right. It's a real question whether some of them will stand the, the uh, test of time, as you pointed out. So, George, what this is Hollywood, and we could go on and on about Hollywood, but, oh, I know, I, I do have to ask you about Elizabeth Taylor. You got to know her, and one of our mutual friends said, I had to be sure to ask you about a wild evening you had with Elizabeth Taylor in Cannes, uh, at the Cannes Film Festival, when when Giant was re-shown there, right? Well, that, that was not a terribly wild but I think what you may be referring to is when I had was in the Air Force during the latter part of the filming of Giant and went to Charlottesville, Virginia to watch the filming. And I found myself sitting on the lawn with Elizabeth Taylor and her little dog and really felt that I'd finally realized what serving my country was. <laughs> You may be sorry that your friend suggested this, but when I came back from the Air Force and worked on the editing of Giant with my father, Elizabeth had said, well, call. She was married to Michael Wilding and call and come come have dinner with us. And I kept kind of almost putting a dime in the phone that kind of being too. Finally, I did it. Oh, and she answered and she was so happy to hear from me. And she said, oh, yes, well, well, come over Wednesday night. Okay, so then I had to think hard about what I was going to wear and do all that. Yeah. And, and I borrowed my father's Mercedes 300, 360 SL with the doors that went up. Nobody was going to see my car, but at, at least I could park it. And, you know, it made me feel good driving over there. Yeah. Ring the doorbell, walk in the house, the two young children run by and uh, the housekeeper after them. And then into my vision walks Elizabeth Taylor in a blue dress, I mean, she was without question the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean, she mm. was then 23 when, when Giant and I was 23. And so I'm kind of looking around to see who's there. And, uh, and she said to me, where are we going? <laughs> and, and I suddenly realized I am taking her out to dinner. Um, and, and I was not a man about town and I didn't have a list of mater d's. Um, so I kind of punted and I said, well, what, what would please you, Elizabeth? And she said, well, Trader Vic's is always nice. And so I went to the phone and I 411 Trader Vic's. And I said, hello, uh, I wonder if you could have a table for two in 15 minutes. And the man said, yes, come right ahead. Your name? I said, uh, uh, Stevens. She climbs into the cockpit and driving this beautiful car down the hills, pretty good stuff. And then we drive up to Trader Vic's and the doormen are impressed and she gets out and has to swing her legs up and get out of the cockpit. And I, and we walk in and now I'm worried about whether we're going to get a good table. This could be quite embarrassing. Right. And the waiter, he looks at me. He somehow must have been a movie buff 
because he looked at me and he said, hello, Mr. Stevens. Whoa. You know, connecting Elizabeth Taylor and the Stevens. And so we got the nice chair with the beautiful fans behind her head. Anyway, my high school friend, Robert Wagner, came by and William Wyler. You know, it was just kind of this lovely dinner. And we're leaving. And, and she said, well, why don't we stop by and see Rock and Phyllis? Rock Hudson had just gotten married. So we drive up into the Hollywood Hills and we have a drink with Rock and Phyllis until she says, Rock, you're doing makeup at five o'clock. You've got to go to bed. So we drive back to Elizabeth's and Park and I'm wondering how this goodnight thing is going to work. She opens the door and leaves it open and I follow her in. And she said, I'll open some champagne. Oh my God. <laughs> now I'm sitting there and the phone rang. And Elizabeth goes in the next room to answer it. And I hear her say, no, not Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. So she is telling her husband, Michael Wilding in London, that I am at their house, you know, which I found rather unsettling. And so she came back in and we, and we said good night and I got the hell out of there. <laughs> anyway. Wow. Wow. That's a story for the ages. Yeah, for sure, George. Okay. Not quite the ending I was hoping to hear, but at any rate. So um, that great time in Hollywood. What brought you to Washington? Well, the idea of me coming to Washington was a surprise. I had by then was directing shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Peter Gunn and had worked with my father on the diary of Anne Frank, and Kennedy was elected. And Edward R. Murrow, we did not know one another, but he came to Hollywood, and some of the younger people asked to meet with him. He was having a big dinner with all the moguls and directors, and we said, you know, it is the new frontier. And Murrow met with us for 45 minutes. Paul Newman was there, Dick Zanuck, and the next day I got a call from Sam Goldwyn Jr. saying, Ed, Ed is staying at my father's house. He wonders if you'd come see him on Sunday. Hmm. And I said, of course, that'd be wonderful. And I, I said, may I ask what it's about? And he said, well, he's looking for somebody to run the motion picture division of the United States Information Agency, which he had agreed to head for President Kennedy and was serving. And I said to Sam, look, that's not going to work. I don't want to waste Mr. Murrow's time. I'm committed to my father on the greatest story ever told. And it's very ambitious and I really couldn't leave him. And Sam says, I understand, goodbye. 10 minutes later, he calls back. He says, Ed says you won't be wasting his time. <laughs> so I went to Sam Goldwyn's house, met with Ed Murrow and ended up with this life changing decision to leave Hollywood and come to Washington and work with Murrow. And I, I don't think there was a better time ever to be in government than during Kennedy's New Frontier. There were so many young people, so many smart people, the aspirations were so high, and Kennedy was extraordinary in, in so many ways. And my job was to make 300 documentaries a year Whoa. to tell America's story abroad. Murrow gave me great running room and I was able to bring in young filmmakers and we made films that won Oscars and but most importantly were really persuasive in telling America's story. But Kennedy, who I met at a dinner at Eunice Shriver's and he came in after dinner and Newt Minow introduced me to the president 
and said, this is George Stevens. He's come to work with it. No, he said, I know about George. He said, I have something I want to talk to you about. You could have knocked me over. It never occurred yeah. to me. And it turned out to be the film about his wartime experience. It was about to be made by Warner Brothers. And we met and talked about that. You know, he was so eloquent. And I used to write down things he said. And one of which was, he spoke of the great, the Greek definition of happiness, the fullest use of one's powers along lines of excellence. And I loved that idea. And then I realized that is what he and Ed Murrow had given to me. Here I was working, making films, wanting them to be excellent in this wonderful atmosphere. He and Murrow both were, along with my father, great mentors. Those films were very important. They, they had a great uh, influence around the world. But then sadly, your last one there, I guess, was making the documentary about John F. Kennedy's assassination and the funeral services and the whole, what was it, the years? John F. Kennedy, Years of Lightning, Day of Drums. Interesting, perhaps, about Murrow and Kennedy. We were shell-shocked that afternoon of November 22nd. And I went to my office and trying to figure out, well, what am I here to do? And I had an idea. And so I went to see Ed Murrow the next morning. Ed had been just out of the hospital, having been operated on for lung cancer. And I went to see him and he always had had, usually in shirt sleeves, but the Savile Row suit. <laughs> and he had a green car cardigan sweater, uh, I remember and in his office and Ed never sat behind his desk when you came in, nor did my father. And he handed me a letter and it was a letter on White House stationery saying, dear Ed, I'm so glad that you're going to be back with us. We very much need you. And he said, I saw one of your films last night, The Five Cities of June. I think it's the best government documentary I've ever seen, one that we had made. You know, it was so moving to, to hold this letter that had been in his hands six days before. And I handed it back to Ed and Ed pushed it away and said, you made, you made the film, you keep the letter. Wow. It really tells you the kind of person Ed was. And then I spoke of what I'd come to see him about. And I told about I wanted to make this film in which we would tell the history of Kennedy's presidency, that I had cameraman in seven countries with 35 millimeter film to film the world reaction. We would film the four days of the funeral and interweave the story of the new frontier. And Murrow listened and then didn't say anything. And suddenly I <laughs> got uneasy. <laughs> First, he said, make a 10 minute film about Lyndon Johnson. And it was him understanding what our job was. Our job oh, okay. was to tell the world that we had had a peaceful transition. He said, then you can make your Kennedy film. Uh, wow, yeah. And we proceeded, uh, Bruce Hershenson uh, was the director. And we made, we filmed Johnson in the Oval Office and had Gregory Peck for the narrator. and. She started outside the White House and before dissolving into Johnson, you hear Peck's voice. The light 
and the White House flickered, but it did not go out. <laughs> well, this became one of Johnson's favorite films. <laughs> and then making the Kennedy film was really kind of a fulfillment. And it was chosen as one of the 10 best films of 1964 by the Exhibitors Association. And it was shown all over the world. And today's podcast with George Stevens Jr. brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Great men and women of the Teamsters Union under President Sean O'Brien, America's largest and most diverse labor union, representing every aspect of the American labor movement. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. Check out their website, teamster.org to see all the great work that they're doing, rebuilding America. And we thank them for uh, being there, being strong, and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I want to jump forward to, you're in Washington. You're, uh, you've been at the USIA. You've made all these documentaries. Uh, great service for the country. And then you had, um, talk about creativity. You had a new idea about the Kennedy Center and something special that should happen at the Kennedy Center. Tell us how that started. Yes, but I just should say that before that, I had founded the American Film Institute. Yes, sorry, right. Not to, not to expand my resume, but for the preface that on its 10th anniversary, we produced an event in the Kennedy Center Opera House, preceded by a reception at the White House, hosted by Jimmy Carter. And it was a tremendous success. It was broadcast on CBS, and it really gave it, the American Film Institute its place on the national stage. And after that event, I went downstairs to see Roger Stevens, no relation to me, who was the chairman of the Kennedy Center, a very impressive, uh, productive person. And I said to Roger, I said, this was such, so great last night, but you, the Kennedy Center, should have your own event and television show. And Roger had kind of odd way of talking. He said, got any IDs? Uh, and I said, well, <laughs> I do have an idea. And I said, I can describe it to you by reciting words that are carved in marble on the wall of this building. Words of John F. Kennedy, who said, I look forward to an America that will not be afraid of grace and beauty that will reward achievement in the arts the way we reward achievement in business 
and statecraft. And I said, we should have here at the Kennedy Center a way of honoring the arts in the spirit of President Kennedy, honoring the great artists. And that's how we started the Kennedy Center Honors. And you brought the White House into that partnership. The role of the presidents, I guess, and their support for it was very important, starting with Jimmy Carter. Yeah, and that's why I mentioned the AFI thing. Yeah. Jerry Rapshoon, a friend of yours, sure. uh, was emissary to the Carters and arranged the AFI event. And then he persuaded the Carters to agree to the Kennedy Center Honors. And without the Carters, there would be no Kennedy Center Honors because it was central to the idea that it was the president who would be present to honor these artists. Did Ronald Reagan pick that up uh, willingly? And Yes, that was crucial because Carter did it for, for two years and then Reagan was elected. And I was known, if not terribly widely, um, as a Democrat. And artists, for the most part, are progressive. So most of the people that they would be honoring, the majority would be Democrats. So I was a little wary of whether the Reagans would embrace this, but they did. And might I say he was born for the job. <laughs> I mean, he was, <laughs> yeah. this was what, you know, he was a wonderful presence and uh, understood the arts, appreciated the arts. Uh, so he, he made that transition and then it was pretty much set. Yeah. I mean, he was among his own, really, being former head of the Screen Actors Guild and, and an actor, even though not a great actor, but an actor. He did have that presence. I got to know him when he was governor of California. When he walked in a room, he owned the room, right? As you, rem you remember. Yeah, yeah yes. for sure. Uh, how about like the Bushes? I mean, all the way along, did you... We'll get to Donald Trump in a while, but all the rest of them, I guess, saw this as uh, uh, an important part of their presidency and something important to support. Yes. And the Bushes were really good friends of Liz's and mine. Mm -hmm. And we uh, had a great time doing with with them. And then the Clintons, they came to it naturally with Vernon Jordan as my dear friend, there was never a question of whether the Clintons were going to do it. <laughs> of course. Uh, and, and George W. Bush, they were um, very warm to it and, and really did it well. And, mm -hmm. and then I, of course, was involved with the Obamas and that. Right. What was Donald Trump's reaction? I produced the honors for 37 years. And uh, the last one I did was Obama's last year. Uh -huh. So it was not my uh, responsibility to deal with Donald Trump. But he did not, as I recall, he did not attend. He chose not to. Yeah. Which which is said. So over the years, who determines, who decides who is going to be honored at the Kennedy Center Honors? Uh, was that your role? Did you have a committee that did it or what? We did. In the first year, Roger, when we had this conversation... And he said, I'd like you to talk with Isaac Stern, the great violinist whom I was acquainted with. And I went to see Isaac in New York. And he just this great spirit, Isaac Stern, in his apartment on the West Side. And he always had his eyeglasses on his head, <laughs> you know, on top of his head. And, and he was just such a creative presence. And we talked about it. And he really loved the idea. 
And we selected the first five for a presentation mm. to the Kennedy Center Executive Committee. And they were Marian Anderson, Arthur Rubenstein, George Balanchine, Richard Rogers of Rogers and Hammerstein, and Fred Astaire. Wow. So we earned some respect, and the Kennedy Center Executive Committee was receptive. Sometimes we make changes based on discussions with the committee, but it was important for the producer to be involved because it was like seating a dinner table. You you wanted the, the different facets of the arts to be rec- represented. You wanted high quality. You wanted diversity. To have 25 people sit down and do it was n- never going to be a great idea. I, I must say it was one of the, I think, virtues of the honors. We weren't perfect, but the quality mixture of the artists was really the foundation of the success. Yeah, I must say in I knew something about your career, George, in reading, again, My Place in the Sun, but we've talked about Hollywood, we talked about the USIA, we talked about the Kennedy Center Honors. I didn't realize that you're also such a successful playwright, uh, and I was really, <laughs> I really struck by the story about how Thurgood came about. You mentioned Sidney Poitier a little earlier, right, who, who was part, <laughs> part of that story. Tell us how you got into that and who ended up playing Thurgood. Yes. Well, we had done Separate but Equal with Sydney, the miniseries that won the Emmy Award. It was very highly regarded. About six years later, I went to dinner with Sydney Poitier and Joanna and Liz. I sat down and just said, what's, what's, what's going on with Sydney? And Sydney had a princely way of talking sometimes. And he said, it has been how many years? It has been 40 years since I did a Raisin in the Sun on Broadway. He said, I want to go back to the theater. I don't know where it came from, but Hmm. I said, well, how about I write a play about Thurgood Marshall? (laughs) Sidney looked at me and he loved the idea. I'd never written a play, but, you know, I write screenplays. And so I wrote the play and gave it to Sidney and he loved it. And he said he had some ideas. And and I had an apartment in Los Angeles in the same building. And Sidney would come down and he would read my play. And you know, to see him, I remember when he had a, wearing a burnt orange sweater, this beautiful, talented man reading my play was so thrilling. And he said, I'm moving out of the, this building. I'm going to a house. I have a room where I'm going to learn your play. Six months later, he invites me up to lunch at his house. He looks at me at lunch and he says, I cannot learn your play. I am 75 years old. And uh, it, it was a big letdown. And then James Earl Jones came to play on Golden Pond at the Kennedy Center. I was reluctant to send it to him and his wife. We were at dinner together. He said, send it to him. And then the next Friday night, Liz answers the phone here in the house, and she says, it's either the Verizon man or James Earl. (laughs) (laughs) I pick up the phone and James Earl says, you have written a kick-ass play. I want to do it. So we went and did it in in, um, Westport, Connecticut, Mm -hmm. and James Earl was wonderful. But 
different learning to play with other actors alone. You know, you've got no partner. And so we kind of dunk a little teleprompter in. And then he felt that he did not want to go to Broadway if he couldn't learn it. And then we ended up with Lawrence Fishburne, who turned out to be a gift because he was 30 years, 40 years younger than the others. So yeah. he could come on kind of made, made acting the old Thurgood, but then take off the glasses and be the vital young Thurgood who was fighting the Brown versus Board of Education case in the courts. You took it to Broadway to the Booth, Booth Theater, as I recall. To the Booth Theater, which I thought was serendipitous because of my great-grandmother George's having played with Edmund Booth, for whom the theater was named. You've mentioned John F. Kennedy several times, and I was really struck toward the end of your book where you quote him, quote, I am certain, this is John F. Kennedy, I am certain that after the dust of centuries has passed over our cities, we too will be remembered not for victories or defeats in battle or in politics, but for our contribution to the human spirit. You know, I thought reading that, George, that was John F. Kennedy's North Star, and that's been your North Star too, hasn't it? It has. And if I could just kind of tie it up, my father was an important influence. It was two years ago that Steven Spielberg called me and said, you know, your father's film Giant is a masterpiece. He said, the new 4K technology, there are a lot of long dissolves film overlapping, which doesn't wear well through the ages. He said, all of that can be improved. I think we should do a 4K restoration. And we did. Stephen is very generous about being interested in other people's work. And we did. And we had a showing of it at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. And Stephen and I and Ben Mankiewicz, nephew of the Mankiewicz I referred to earlier, Joe Mankiewicz, we introduced it. And Stephen was so interested. He said, this is a film that could have been called Scenes from a Marriage. You know, Giant is a big story about Texas, and it is a story of a man and a woman. But to have that restored, and I said to the audience that 65 years ago this year, we premiered this film in this theater. 65 years. Wow. And we're showing it restored. And to watch, as Stephen and I did, 1,500 people watch that film and the laughter how it had stood the test of time. And I remember that my father, when, when we were editing Giant, and I was you know, 23, and hot summer afternoons, and he worked and worked and worked. He spent a year editing that film. And at one point I said to him, Dad, we've had two good previews. You just keep making these little changes. Shouldn't you just get it out there? He looked at me and he said, when you think how many man hours he would have said man and woman hours today, are going to be spent watching this film, which ran three hours and 20 minutes. When you think of all that time people are going to devote to it, don't you think it's worth us spending just a little more of our time to make it as good as it can be? And, you know, that idea of respect for the audience links with what you were saying of the, the human spirit. And, uh, I'm so happy that I had those influences 
to guide my own work. Well, as they say at Hollywood, that's a wrap. (laughs) That's a wrap with director George Stevens, Jr. Again, the book is, it's a wonderful book, My Place in the Sun. There'll be a link in the episode notes to today's podcast to get your copy of My Place in the Sun. I know you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Now, we'll be back on Friday with a day after Thanksgiving special. Uh, We're going to talk about presidents and food. Yes, all the favorite foods of all of our favorite presidents and maybe some of our not so favorite presidents. Uh, Alex Prudhomme, who's the author of a recent book called Dinner with the President, will be joining us as a special Thanksgiving holiday treat. So have a great week, everybody. Enjoy the rest of the vacation. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you on the day after Thanksgiving with Alex Prudhomme on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.